Well, in the year 1095, the Byzantine Empire was under attack by advancing Muslim invaders. Byzantium was considered a Christian nation, and so the attack on Byzantium was considered to be an attack on God's kingdom. This was an attack from the kingdom of darkness when Muslims invaded. It was a, a satanic assault. Now, the reason there was such alarm and not just, well, this is just a war like any other war is because of uh, the Christians at the time had a general interpretation that was a misunderstanding of the prayer, may thy kingdom come. And they thought that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, my father's kingdom, Anytime you read the word kingdom in the New Testament, it was referring to a physical place on earth where God's people lived in a physical, political kingdom. Kind of like Israel did in the Old Testament. They thought that Christians were to have a Christian nation, and they believed that they had established this in Byzantium. And so now, with the Byzantine Empire being the, the Christian kingdom of heaven, when the Muslims started taking property, they didn't really know what to do with this theologically. And so Alexios I asked Pope Urban II, um, Alexios was the Byzantine ruler, he asked the Pope of the Catholic Church to help with some way, and um, Pope Urban came up with this plan where he issued a decree saying that anybody who joined an army to fight the Muslims would be guaranteed salvation. So I want you to think about that for a moment. If you join the Coast Guard, you go to heaven. <laughs> How many people are going to join the Coast Guard? Everybody who is, you know, has a willing sword arm, a guilty conscience, and a wrong view of salvation signed up to make the world's largest, history's largest army of unbelievers who thought they were on a mission for God. And they became known as the Crusaders. And so you've heard of the Crusades over many, many years, these Crusades. This is what they were doing. This was a political army of people who called themselves Christians because they had been baptized, and they were seeking salvation and redemption through the killing of Muslims and the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. Well, the Crusades are only one of many wacky ways. People uh, have tried to answer the prayer, May thy kingdom come. Um, it's been misapplied throughout centuries, but to avoid similar lethal hermeneutics, you should turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to see what the Bible teaches about this concept of the kingdom of heaven. You'll remember in Luke 11, we're at uh, the disciples' prayer, also called the Lord's Prayer, because the Lord taught it to them. When they saw John's disciples praying and they asked Jesus for, to help them, or when Jesus was praying on his own and came out, please teach us to pray. Jesus didn't say, just pray any way you want. God knows your heart. Jesus said, you know, basically, good question. Take notes here. When you pray, say, Father. And so that's kind of where we, we find ourselves in verse 2. Um, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's as far as we'll get tonight. Matthew chapter 6 adds, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the one that we all learned, right? That's the one that you say when you say the Our Father. These are prayers that were taught on two separate occasions by Jesus. They are not word for word, which is how we know Jesus didn't meant for them to be um, rote prayers that we all memorize and pray. So that's kind of what we've learned so far. Uh, we looked at the, that line, when you pray, say, Father, that God must be your Father. You need to be a Christian to pray to God. You need to be one of His children. Um, the only prayer he wants to hear from an unbeliever is a prayer of repentance so that he, they can become a child of God. 
Um, hallowed be your name means that you want God's name to be made known, to be revered, to uh, be made holy, to be treated as holy, and for his reputation to expand. So, of course, you have to live a life that agrees with God's and endorses God's and expands God's reputation as holy, um, if that's what you're praying, hallowed be your name. And then this little part here, your kingdom come, or may your kingdom come, and we'll even throw in, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll cover all of that. So the question we're going to answer tonight is simply, what should you pray for um, when you're praying for the kingdom to come? Now, what the kingdom of heaven is, is really a sermon on its own. And so I commend to you that you ought to come back to church on Sunday night. On Sunday night, I'm going to preach the four main, well, let's well, I haven't decided how many main views we'll cover, but at least four main views, well, okay, at least three main views of the kingdom of heaven, probably four, um, on Sunday night, okay, and we'll talk about what that is, because different Christians and different denominations have a different view of what the kingdom is, and if you misunderstand it, it can affect certain um, decisions you make, which is why it was one of the first questions I asked Kim on our first date, because I was a seminary student and kind of nerdy, but I asked her, what is your view of these things? Because I couldn't marry somebody who had the wrong view of the kingdom. Anyway, with a different view. Um, okay, so tonight we're going to just say, well, what do you pray for? When you're praying for the kingdom, what are you praying for? And there are four aspects of the kingdom to pray for so that you are on mission with Jesus, so that you are praying in line with what Jesus wants you to pray when he says, pray, may your kingdom come. The first aspect is pray for the mission already reaching unbelievers. Secondly, you're going to pray for maturity, which is already begun in believers. Thirdly, you're going to pray for the ministry, which is already serving society worldwide. And then finally, you pray for the ministration, which is not yet realized. And I'll explain that when we get there, because notice that there's there's some things that are already happening in the kingdom. There's some things that are not yet happening in the kingdom. And so I'm kind of tipping my hand as to which view I'm going to take, but I'll explain all of that on Sunday, Sunday night. Okay, so first let's look at one, one of the things you're praying for when you say, may your kingdom come. This is what you should have in mind. You're praying for the mission already reaching unbelievers. When Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, he intended the mission of God's kingdom to be fueled by the prayer of the saints. In other words, God's kingdom is going to do what God's kingdom is going to do. But if you ask Jesus, what should I pray for? One of the first things you need to pray for is that God's mission is accomplished. That God's kingdom comes. That what God wants to happen will happen. So you are, remember, the main point of prayer is not to change God's mind on anything. It's to change you. It's to change your mind and to align you with God's will. So that eventually, when you're perfectly aligned with God's will, everything that you're praying for is being answered because you're praying perfectly in line with God's will. And so your whole life is a life of growing in that understanding of what to pray for. So you're praying for this mission of reaching unbelievers. Now, what is the main mission of the kingdom of God? Like, what, do you, what is God's purpose for, for the earth? Well, we see in Matthew 28, 19... One of the last things Jesus said when he, before he went to heaven was, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We call that the what? What's that famous passage? Go make disciples. It's the Great Commission. That's why it's the Great Commission. It's the Great 
standing order that Jesus left Christians, primarily his apostles, but part of that is to teach everyone else that you make a disciple to do everything I taught you, including to teach people to make disciples, to teach people to make disciples until that's why we're all saved. It's because the apostles obeyed that. And they taught the people that got saved to obey that. And those people taught the people who got saved to obey that. And that's why we evangelize and why when someone gets saved, we teach them to evangelize. That is the mission. That's why we're on earth. You've heard it said before, the only thing that you do better on earth than what you can do in heaven for God's glory is evangelize. Because there's no missions in heaven. Everybody there is already a believer, right? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when the apostles got together, Jesus was about to go up to heaven. Um, in verse 6, it says, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So this is a very important question. And we'll see this on Sunday, that throughout the Old Testament, there's this expectation that Israel is looking for a kingdom, meaning a physical kingdom. And Jesus came, and they thought he was coming to bring the kingdom, but then he died. But then he rose again, and now he's leaving. And they're asking, hey, before you go, isn't there just this one little thing you've forgotten? The whole reason you came was to give the kingdom back to Israel? So whatever Jesus says now is a very important recalibration of what the Jews were expecting. Is it at this time you restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he went to heaven. So when you ask Jesus, haven't you forgotten to restore the kingdom, the kingdom that was promised throughout the Old Testament? How come Israel doesn't have that yet? You're leaving. You're the king. What's going on here? His answer isn't, oh, you guys have completely misunderstood this whole kingdom thing. He says, no, it's coming. Just not yet. And it's not up to you to know when. There, isn't a, there is a time and a season when it's going to come in the way that you're expecting it. But not yet. In the meantime, this is what I'm going to commission you to do. Don't worry about bringing in the kingdom. What you do, and your part in bringing in the kingdom is this. Go be a witness. So what does it mean to be a witness? Live a holy life like I've taught you. Learn what I've taught you. Teach it to others. Share the gospel. Support missions. Maybe become a missionary. Go learn languages, translate the scripture, all the things that we, we do as a church, the whole reason we exist as a church. That's why churches are nonprofit organizations. It's not like we, we, we get this great surplus at the end of the year and then we give all of our shareholders a dividend. That's what companies do. Churches pour their money into the ministry. And so they send missionaries all over the world so that they can learn languages, so they can translate scripture, so that they can plant churches, so that they can go to the unbelievers in those areas all over the, the ends of the earth, and those people get saved, and then they plant those churches, and they teach those people to do what? Go and get more people saved. And so wherever you go, you're going to find people sharing the gospel, spreading the kingdom. That's our job. So when you're praying, may your kingdom come, that's what you're doing. You're fueling that mission. Person to person. 
Now, if you think of the phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what would be the best way God's will is being done on earth? So how's it being done in, in heaven? Pretty well, I would assume, right? You do God's will. You obey. How do you do God's will in heaven? Everyone's obeying perfectly. Everyone's worshiping perfectly. Nobody's sinning. Okay, so now if you're praying that God's will is going to be done on earth, what you can do is you can start obeying, not sinning, worshiping, serving, and, and getting other people to do the same thing. Start with your kids. It's hard work. That'll pretty much keep you busy your whole life. You work on you and your kids and your spouse and a couple of your friends, that's you spreading the kingdom of God's will being done here on earth. Don't pray for God's will to be done on earth if you're in sin. That's just silly. Start with you. Make your own bed, right, before you change the world. Now, you can't force people to do God's will like the crusaders tried to do. You can't go in and say, you need to obey or I'm going to kill you. That's just not how that works. It doesn't, it doesn't travel through armies. It travels through the gospel being shared by one, from one person to another. Um, that's why we pray. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Paul said, Finally, brothers, pray for us. So what does Paul want them to pray for? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. That's a great prayer. That the word of the Lord may speed on ahead and be honored he means in my mission, my mission as a missionary, I want you to pray for me so that the word speeds into people's lives like it did with you. That's a great prayer. Here's another one, Colossians 4.3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Colossians 4.3, is a, there's a little bit of humor in there. I don't know if you spotted it. Where is Paul when he's writing Colossians? He's in prison. And what's he praying for? He's praying for an open door. So that's kind of funny. That's what you're going to pray for if you're in prison. You pray for the door to be unlocked, right? But he's not praying for it for himself. A, a physical door, he's using a pun. He says, pray for us that, the door may, uh, that, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So, he's, so imagine that. Like Imagine I'm in jail and you get a letter from Clint and he's in jail and he's asking for prayer and he asks, please just pray for an unlocked cell door. You'd be like, yeah, of course, that's a great thing to pray for. And then that dot, 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 so that I can share the gospel with the guards, not so that I can escape. That's what Paul's praying. So that is a great prayer. That's what you're praying when you say, may the kingdom come. That's what I want. I wanted to be able to spread and that spread is fueled by your prayers. So pray for each other to have opportunities to share the gospel. This is a distinguishing characteristic of the kingdom. It starts small and it spreads gradually throughout the whole world. There's a parable that a lot of people misinterpret. It's got a very simple meaning. It's the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed. So you want to know what the kingdom of heaven's like? He, so Jesus in Matthew 13 gives a lot of kingdom parables, and he kind of gives you different aspects of the kingdom in different angles. And one of the ways he wants to describe the, the kingdom is the way that it spreads. 
There's something about it in that parable. See if you can hear it. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And everyone's like, do the birds of the air represent the Gentile nations? And the, Listen, it doesn't matter. The point is this. Something started small and it grew big. And it was fruitful, and it was inviting, and it was useful. It took over. That's what the kingdom of heaven's like. You know what, how it started? Twelve men on a hill looking up. Well, eleven. Judas wasn't there. And then what happened? The upper, prayer, the upper room prayer meeting. 120 people. And then when the Spirit came and those 120 people were filled with the Spirit, Peter starts preaching and 3,000 people get saved in Jerusalem. Then he preaches again and 5,000 people are added to the church until the Jerusalem church is this mega church of at least 8,000 people that have come from all over for Pentecost and now they're all saved and they don't want to leave so they start selling their property and um, helping each other and that's the birth of the church. And they loved it and they didn't want to leave. But what did Jesus say? Go into all the nations. Who wants to be the first to leave the, the world's first awesome, thriving megachurch where the elders are the apostles? Not me. Why don't you go? I'll be on whatever duty. I want to sit and listen to the apostles. So you know what God did? Persecution. Persecution started. The stoning of Stephen. And because of that, they all scatter. And guess what they did? Where they went? They planted churches. They preached the gospel. They sent out missionaries, etc., etc. That just kept on happening. So that's what you're praying for. You're praying for the mission to spread to unbelievers when you pray, thy kingdom come. The second aspect of the kingdom that you're praying for is maturity. This is also something that's already happening that we can pray for. Maturity begun in believers' lives. When Jesus says, pray that may thy kingdom come, he's saying that we need to pray for the kingdom to grow in people as well so that God's will is done on earth, meaning obedience, worship, service, holiness, purity is done on earth. You can't force people to be pure. You can't force people to be holy. You can't go into a, a nation like the Crusaders did and say, be holy or we're going to kill you. That's just not how it works. The only way to be holy is to slowly, slowly grow into Christ-likeness. Through the study of his word, through prayer, through the spiritual disciplines, through the trials that God brings into your life, through the fellowship of the saints, through all these different things that we do at church. That's how you grow. Whenever I meet a Christian, oh, I'm a Christian too. And I say, well, what church do you go to? Well, I don't go to church. Okay, well, I know something about you. You are now missing. If you are a Christian that doesn't go to church, you are missing out on the entire mechanism that Jesus left to make you more like him. You've got a couple of things. You probably have a Bible. You probably have some songs you sing in a CD in the car, in the shower or whatever. But you don't have faithful believers who love you and know the word, holding you to the standard of the word through church discipline. You don't have people who are withholding communion if you're in unrepentant sin. You don't get to fellowship with the saints, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another. You don't get to do all the things that the Bible says you're supposed to do. You're certainly not doing missions. Because that's too expensive for one person to do, unless you're like 
you know, this uber wealthy Christian who's like sponsoring missionaries. The way we do missions is we all get together and we pool our resources and we send missionaries. So you're, you're, you're stunted in your maturity. When we pray for the kingdom to come, we're praying for the kingdom to come in, in individual. That we slowly, slowly become more conformed that the will of God is done on earth. You know, that's why it's a bad idea to send... I don't want to say it's a bad idea. It's a, it's a sub-optimal idea to send a missions team, a short-term missions team to a country um, to pr preach the gospel. Let's say you go to some little village in the Amazon or Papua New Guinea or whatever, and you preach the gospel, and, you know, three, four, five, six, eight, twelve people get saved, and, and then you're like, can I please take a picture of those of you who got saved from our PowerPoint uh, presentation when I get back? And then you leave them there. Because what are they going to learn? They don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have a church. They don't have elders. They don't have a pastor. You just made spiritual orphans. I'm not saying they didn't get saved. Because you just have to believe in Jesus to be saved. Maybe they never heard of Jesus. So it's, it's, I guess in one sense, it's better than nothing. But it's not what we're meant to be doing. That's not the Great Commission. Go out there and just you know, throw the gospel out and run away. No, the Great Commission is go make disciples. What's the word for disciples? It means learners. Go make learners. And what do you do with learners? Well, Matthew 28 tells you. Teaching them. So you baptize them. Yeah, they get saved. Teaching them all that I taught you. That's what we're praying for when we're praying for the kingdom to come. It's not only that people are going out and the word is going out there, but then once it's there and the people get saved, that those people become more and more mature in Christ. And that takes work. And that takes prayer. And you can look in our prayer handout that you got this evening. One of the pages, it's a list of the, the missionaries that we have and the places that we do missions. And if you're not sure what to pray, like, I don't know what's happening here in this part of Italy or this part of Papua New Guinea or whatever it is. If you, if you don't know, pray for an opportunity for the word to go out so that more unbelievers hear the word. And secondly, pray that those people who do get saved in those regions, grow in Christ and mature. That's how the kingdom is coming in those places. The New Testament is full of prayers that we don't pray, if we're honest. Um, if I just asked you, what, what is the thing that, let's say, the Apostle Paul prays most about when, when you see what he prays about is recorded in Scripture? Is it health? Is it safety? Comfort? Stability in the nation? Freedom of religion? No, what he prays for is for believers to grow in their maturity. I'll give you a few examples. Um, well, firstly, Colossians 1, 28, he, he says his life's mission is him we proclaim, meaning Christ. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Philippians 1, 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That's what he's praying, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. It's a good prayer. So that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When was the last time you prayed that prayer for someone in this church? Philemon 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective 
for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. That's a great prayer. That your faith may become effective to the full knowledge of every good thing. Colossians 1.9 From the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you recover from the surgery you just had. No. Asking that you and your in-laws get along well over the Thanksgiving dinner. No, we haven't stopped asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what I'm praying for you. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean, you just see it over and over and over. The one time Paul prays for healing is for, for deliverance of a physical um, harassment is in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about how he prayed the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan would be removed. He prayed for it three times, and God said, stop asking. I'm not taking that away from you. Our health and comfort and security is almost unimportant. What's important to us, ought to be important to us, is knowledge and wisdom and fruit-bearing, and discernment. These are the things we should be praying for one another. Because if you have those things, it doesn't matter what happens to this little body of ours that's going to just get eaten by worms anyway. What, if you have knowledge, you can help the kingdom come. If you have wisdom and discernment and maturity. The kingdom is coming in you. The kingdom is coming in the people that know you. The kingdom is coming as it spreads to more and more people that get saved. So pray for the maturity that's already begun in believers. A third thing to pray for when you're praying for the kingdom of God to come, think about this, the ministry already serving in society. So one of the things Jesus did was to provide for us a glimpse of king, the kingdom on earth. Think of what Jesus did. So even though people in the New Testament aren't recorded as praying for healings, when Jesus was in town, he healed people, didn't he? He, he cast out demons, he brought the rule of God to a town by getting rid of Satan's influence, by casting out the demons. He, he rid the whole place of disease so that people were coming with all manners of diseases and all those sicknesses and diseases were just taken away from him, from them because Jesus gave a glimpse of what the kingdom was like. When people were hungry, he fed the 5,000. On another occasion, he fed the 4,000. He helped fishermen catch their fish. Um, he was a provider. So when Jesus was around... There was food. There was even wine. Don't know what to do with that. John chapter 2. Um, there was food. There was wine. There was uh, security. There was uh, health and flourishing. And there was spiritual protection. You want to know what the kingdom of heaven's like? That's what it's like. It's a place where there is no mourning and death. He raised, he raised people from the dead even. It's a place where there's no death. It's a place where there's no disease. It's a place where there's no influence of Satan and his demons. It's a place where there's no hunger. It's a place where there's perfect security and perfect peace and perfect provision for all eternity. That's the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus gave glimpses of that when he was on earth. And then when he left, he told us to go and teach people what they'd just seen. And part of that is our living out the glimpses of the kingdom for the world to watch. 
So yes, we're sharing the gospel so people get saved. Yes, we're teaching them so they mature, and in that way the kingdom's coming. But the other way the kingdom comes is that wherever Christians go, and you can look at this through church history, wherever Christians go, any town they go to, any country they go to, any language they learn, any place that they end up, they not only plant churches, they plant schools, hospitals, orphanages, they help people read and write so that they can study the Bible and become educated. They teach them crafts and skills so that they can support themselves. They, they bring the hospitals, they bring medicines. They bring Christians who study medicine so that they can go and not make a fortune as, as doctors, but so that they can go be poor in these areas where poor people need free medicine. Where Christians go, the kingdom goes. And healing comes. And literacy and safety and security, they bring order, they bring rules, they bring the rule of law. And you can just look throughout the world history that the countries that have the, the most effective flourishing of civilization are the countries that bring Christianity to them. And the more Christianity is oppressed in a country, the more poverty and disease and demonic oppression there is. So part of the kingdom coming is, as there's more and more Christians in the world, there's more and more people simply doing the things Christians do, which is help society. One of the best things that churches can do for the witness of the gospel is just ameliorate any situation that they're in. When there was a massive tornado damage in a, a town in Mississippi where we had friends that had moved from our church to that church, our church sent them money to help with the rebuilding. That's what Christians do. When there's a disaster, Christians go and help. When there's a need, Christians go and meet it. Imagine the whole world full of Christians. Anything, anytime, anything. It's like having a, a body that's just got this flourishing immune system. Whenever there's a disease, the antibodies go and they, they deal with it. That, well, we're the antibodies in this diseased world. I don't know if that metaphor works. I just came up with that. But anyway, <laughs> stick to your notes. Jesus taught personal, personal ethics as well. Turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, pay your taxes, obey the government. In short, he showed us what life on earth could be like if God's will was being done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there needs to be a balance there, of course. You can't do all these you know, social welfare things without sharing the gospel. That's missing the point of the kingdom. But if you're just doing the gospel and you're not doing anything else, you're missing a dimension of ministry that undergirds the power of the gospel. So I, I don't like it when people are hungry or lonely or sick. And so if I can, I want to help feed them and, and minister to them and pr provide medicine or healing in some way that I can, right? So, so that if somebody looks at my life over a long period of time and then learns what I believe the kingdom of heaven looks like, they should say, yeah, that makes sense that that's what he believes because look at his life. They should not say, it's interesting that he thinks that the most important thing in the world is the kingdom of heaven, but if you look at his life, he looks a lot like the kingdom of earth. You don't want that. So that's the third thing to pray for. And then finally, the, when you're praying and now we get to a pretty interesting part, um, I think. When you're praying for the kingdom to come, you are praying for something that has not yet happened and not able to happen right now. 
is, I called it, ministration not yet realized. It should really be administration. But ministration works. I looked it up in dictionary. It means the same thing. Um, and I don't want to lose the MMMM, you know. That's OCD. Um, the ministration not yet realized. What I mean by this is the, the physical political, you might want to use, establishment, the administration of God's kingdom on earth is not here yet, but it needs to be. I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2, the letter of Titus, because you see all these things together. We're going to pray for aspects that are already part of the kingdom, the mission spreading, the maturity in believers, ministry, serving society, but we're also going to pray, pray for an aspect that's not yet happening. In Titus chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, this is what it says. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is interesting. So Paul is writing to Titus, the pastor of the church in Crete, and he's telling him that if there are slaves in your church, so people that are, have been, you know, in those days slavery could be a voluntary thing that you've sold yourself into in order to pay off a debt, but it, it was also it could be kidnapping, um, illegal type of slavery, which is outlawed in Scripture, by the way. When we think of slaves, like in the American, uh, the history of slavery in America and England, that's outlawed in Scripture. It's called kidnapping. Um, but... These people who are slaves, if they hear the gospel, they're still slaves. So what do they do? And they're in your church. Well, tell them to be submissive to their masters and that they'll be well-pleasing and not argumentative and don't steal, etc., etc. So the kingdom benefits society through a kingdom work ethic for the sake of the gospel. So wherever you find yourself, you may be in a very unjust situation, but wherever you find yourself, do your best to bring the kingdom ethic to where you are. So you might be in jail. You might be in jail for the gospel as Paul was, which is unjust and not an ideal situation. But while he's there, he does the best that he can to spread the kingdom ethic where he is. And then verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. So the kingdom is already spreading from person to person. Then in verse 12, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So here the kingdom grows in maturity with individuals. In verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is an aspect that hasn't coming. So you see what he's saying. So when, you, when you're speaking to people that are in a situation they can't get out of in this life, like slaves, what do they do? Well, tell them these things. Make sure that you are keeping a good witness so that you can share the gospel. So the kingdom comes person to person, like we said. Make sure that you, yourself, are renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and living self-controlled and upright in this present age so that the kingdom is coming in you and that you are maturing. And wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the part of the kingdom that's still coming. Look to that, hope for that, Keep a heavenly mindset that that's still going to come. So you see that there's aspects of the, I'm just using Titus as an example here. There's aspects of the kingdom that are already here and we're praying for those. Benefit society, share the gospel, you grow. But there is an aspect of the kingdom that's, there's more to it than just what we're doing. 
he is going to come back and he is going to set these people free. And so you might not be able to get free now if you're a slave or you're in prison or whatever it is, but he is going to come and set these people free and he is going to make things right and he is going to, in his glorious appearing, bring an actual physical kingdom on earth. So how do you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as heaven? Well, you're praying for the mission to spread. For missionaries, for the gospel to go out from this pulpit, from the pulpits in our city and in our nation and throughout the world. You're praying for opportunities for you to share the gospel at work. Secondly, you're praying for maturity in yourself and in your children and the people that you know in your church. Thirdly, you're praying for a benefit to society, the ministry spreading and benefiting society, getting glimpses of the kingdom wherever Christians are. And then finally, you're going to pray for this administration of God being on earth in his glorious appearing that's still coming. And that's why John ends the Bible with the words, even so, come Lord Jesus. Because things aren't the way that they should be yet. And they're not going to be perfect until he comes and establishes his kingdom. Now, if you want to know what different Christians believe about what that kingdom is and whether it's coming and what it's going to look like, you're going to have to come back on Saturday, Sunday <laughs> night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. It is, a, it is a wonderful encouragement to know that as we are praying for the kingdom to come, you are answering that prayer in many ways already in our mission and in our personal maturity and the ministry to society. But Lord, we... We especially want to pray that the kingdom would come um, in earnest, in, in reality, uh, physically, where we can see our Savior and reign with him for a thousand years. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we, we got time for Q&A, but I do want you to kind of resist the temptation to ask questions that I'm going to answer on Sunday night about the kingdom. So you can ask, but I might just say we'll answer that one on Sunday night. Yeah, Deb. Sure. Can you address that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So Deb's asking, let me just repeat it for the camera, um, about, it's actually a, a movement that's becoming a little bit more popular even in evangelical circles today in the church um, that teaches that there's a way of experiencing same-sex attraction uh, in a way that's still glorifying to God. So that's, it's becoming more popular. I think it's never, it's, that's never been taught in church history ever. It's become popular because Christians are trying to wrestle with um, how normalized homosexuality is becoming in our society, that Christians are being marginalized as, uh, you know, prejudiced and closed-minded and old-fashioned and bigoted and intolerant. And so we don't want that reputation. So let's figure out a way to say, no, 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 no. Even Christians can accept um, homosexuality in, in a certain form and so that's where the movement's coming from. I know that's not what you're asking. We'll get to what you're asking in a moment. So you just asked me to address that, that concept because what it teaches is, what these people say is that um, 
same-sex attraction is, and they call that SSA is different from homosexuality in, in, in their thinking because homosexuality would include the uh, homosexual lifestyle and the acting out of their desires. Whereas same-sex attraction is simply acknowledging that a person has an attraction but that they're not acting it out in a, in a sexual way. So what they say is um, it's a temptation to homosexual sin, but because they're not engaging in the homosexual sin, it's not sinful. And so that's where they, they, there's a distinction between a temptation and a sin. So uh, let me first say it is true that there's a distinction between a temptation and a sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. Remember? And so and when Satan came to tempt Jesus um, 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus didn't sin, but he was tempted by Satan. So it is true that your temptation is not sin. What is temptation? Temptation is a scenario that is set up in which you have a choice to make for sin or against it. So when that scenario is set up, Satan shows up and says, make bread out of these rocks. Jesus now has a choice to make. So he hasn't sinned. He chooses not to. He doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't say, well, technically this isn't, wouldn't be sinful because I am in He just, no, if, if there's a scenario there where I can glorify God or not glorify God, I'm going to choose glorifying God. So that's true. I think what they're saying, though, is different. I think that if you are a Christian that has, that experiences an attraction to somebody of the same sex, in one sense, you can liken it just to a Christian. Let's say a married Christian is attracted to somebody they're not married to. Well, that's also sin, right? Um, that would be a heterosexual sexual sin as opposed to a homosexual one. But what they're saying is, I can identify myself as this type of person. As long as I don't act on it, it's not sinful. So that's not dealing with temptation the way the Bible says to deal with temptation, which is to flee temptation, to renounce sin, to repent of it. And specifically, I would go to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, speaking in a heterosexual context, just normal men and women um, with normal sexual desires for one another, he says that if you look at a woman who's not your wife with lust, another man's wife with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So what, what is happening there? Why is the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife? Well, the issue there is, if you want something you can't have, you've already sinned. It's not a scenario that's developed that you have to have a choice. What you're saying is, I want something that God can't give me. Now, I'm not going to go and steal it. Well, that's good. That would be stealing. But you shouldn't even covet it. You shouldn't even want something that God doesn't want for you. And what they're doing is they're settling in an area, uh, kind of this area between sin and temptation, where they're saying part of my identity is I'm a person that's constantly tempted with the sin, and that's okay because I, I don't deal with it. Imagine I said to you, I'm somebody who's constantly tempted with coveting. I go window shopping all the time, and I just desire everything that I see in the window. I want that Rolex, and I want that you know, um, Ferrari, and, what, and, and my whole life is just consumed by my desires for things that I can't have. And that's okay. That's glorifying to God. You would say, no, buddy, you've got a problem. You need to fight harder against your covetousness. Maybe don't go window shopping. Maybe focus on contentment. Maybe focus. So we deal with all us in that way. If there's something that's pulling your, your flesh towards it, you run from it. You don't settle in as, well, this is just who I am. Good thing I haven't actually done it yet. Because a person who's 
comfortable being around the temptation is a person who hasn't sinned yet. It's just a matter of time. So when a person falls into sexual sin, they don't fall far. They've come right up to the edge. So if a person came to me and said, I have these thoughts and these desires that I know I shouldn't have, please help me overcome them, there's a lot of hope for people like that. That's, that's all of us. We all have thoughts and desires that we shouldn't have, and if yours is same-sex attraction, that's something we can work with. Let's, let's think of verses to memorize. Let's, this is what to pray. This is how to flee. That type of literature and people that draw you that way and pursue purity, and, and you might spend the rest of your life fighting it. But, but we're all going to spend the rest of our life fighting sin. That's okay. You fight sin or you die trying. You don't say, this is part of my identity, this is just who I am, and so I'm going to meet with other people who have the same identity, and we're going to talk about this issue, and we're going to write books about this issue, and we're going to encourage each other that we're all fine, that we're all okay, that it's not sin. It just goes against the way Christians fight their sin. Does that answer your question somewhat? Yeah, I mean, Jesus says, pluck your eye and throw it from you. Chop your hand off. This isn't like, it's okay that you want that, just don't do it. He's like, no, rip your eye out. Don't want it. You're a new creature. You should have new desires. Yeah. Great question. Any other questions? Yes, Emery. So the, um, the, the creation mandate, which you've also heard called the cultural mandate, does it have any parallel with what? With the Great Commission. Well, the, the creation mandate is uh, to subdue the earth and to um, rule over the animals, birds of the, the sky and the um, fish of the sea and the land animals, and then to um, go forth and multiply as in physically multiply, making disciples, you know, the old-fashioned way. Um, that's what that's referring to. So that was a command given to Adam, and the idea is that that command was meant for the human race. Um, and so we inherit that creation mandate in the sense that it is our job as humans to subdue the earth, to rule over the animals, and to fill the earth with humans. So that there are the people that God, the creatures that God put here to run the, the show need to be here. Um, so I would think that if there was ever a movement, and it may come to this someday, to decrease population size by limiting families to only one child or no children for a period of time or something like that, that Christians could have a valid objection based on the, the creation mandate um, and say no. We, we can't decrease the planet's population to the point where we're unable to subdue the earth and rule over the fish of the sea. But I don't think that there's an, a necess, necessarily a command to each Christian to have as many babies as they can. They're allowed to, um, and there's nothing in the Bible that would say they aren't. In fact, it's encouraged, but it's, I wouldn't say that you're sinning if you decide to stop having children after, I mean... I think four is sometimes the most some people can handle. But some people can handle more, and then they should. But, uh, th so that's not answering your question. You wanted to link it to the Great Commission. 
I don't think I've thought of it linked to the Great Commission. You mean just having more children means you have more people that you can evangelize? Like in a family? How would it be linked to the Great Commission? Part of subduing the earth is redeeming the world by sharing the gospel. Okay, I see what you're saying there. But uh, the creation mandate, I think, is a physical subduing of the earth. Like it means it's okay and right for um, human beings to clear spaces and build cities um, and to manage the water flow and, you know, fires and all that kind of stuff in order so that there can be human flourishing. And it's, it's even permitted for us to drive animals out of that area. Um, it's not talking about a spiritual subduing at that point. I think the Great Commission is more like that. Like we are going to, the spiritual part of the kingdom, um, the, the already here part of the kingdom, which is the spiritual part, that is spread. Um, I just wouldn't conflate that with the physical subduing of the earth. By the way, subduing the earth and um, ruling over the animals, having dominion over the animals, does not permit us to treat animals as if they have no consequence in our lives. Um, and so animal cruelty, for example, is a sin. Um, Proverbs 12.10 tells us that as well. The, the righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but the cruelty of the wicked is not so, or something like that. Okay, I answered a bunch of questions that you didn't ask, but did I ask some of the questions you did ask? <laughs> Good, okay, anyone else? The clock at the back is gone. I have one more minute. Yes, Brian. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so his question is, the fourth commandment, um, thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy and not do any work on it, and not let any of your servants or your animals do work on it. So you have to keep all of that, and that's the command. And how do we apply that today to Christians? And Bryant was mentioning somebody who knows that said that they felt convicted that they ought not even to drive their car on a Saturday, um, and that they should rather drive on another day. So what's happening there is there's a couple of things happening. So firstly, I'm glad the person knows that it's a Saturday and not a Sunday. Some Christians get confused with that, and they say that keeping the Sabbath is what we do on Sunday. Well, the Sabbath is Saturday, and that, doesn't, that hasn't changed. Um, but the Sabbath rest, so God creates the world in six days. On the seventh day, he stops doing the work he was doing and makes it a holy day, of enjoying the work that he's done. And he sets that as a pattern, as a seven-day pattern for humanity. And it only gets commanded by Moses in the Mosaic law for the first time. I think it was being observed to a certain point. But Moses commands that they had to take Saturday off. Um, it's one of the Ten Commandments. There are other commandments in the Mosaic Law as well that you have to leave your land every seven years, and there's the year of Jubilee every 50 years, and there's all sorts of things that were built in there, and they all kept all of those. Now, just, just a little tangent here. 
the reason he says he wouldn't drive his car on a Saturday is because Jews today, um, Orthodox Jews who keep the Sabbath, believe that because one of the one of the commandments is to not make a fire, well, to not do work. Making a fire is doing work. So turning on your engine is causing electricity, and they don't they won't start electricity. They will use electricity, but they won't start it. So you can't turn a light on on the Sabbath. You can turn it on on Friday and leave it all the way through till Sunday, but you can't turn it on. If you go to Israel um, or you go to um, Cedar sinai Hospital, I think that's in New York, there are elevators on Saturdays that just go up and down and stop at every floor so the Jews can still use the elevators because they're not pushing a light, which would turn on a light. So what they've done is they've legalized the system to the point where it's a huge burden, which is missing the point entirely, something Jesus was against. So that's about the driving the car. Uh, let me come back. I'm just trying to remember where my train of thought was going with this. Oh, uh, Christians. So firstly, when, when uh, this is what I would ask a person. When Jesus died on the cross and he fulfilled the law, what part of the law did he not fulfill? And the answer is no part of the law. He said he fulfilled the whole law. So the whole law of Moses, from Moses till Jesus, he kept the law perfectly and he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of it. That's why the dietary laws don't apply. That's why the mixed fabric law doesn't apply and you can wear polyester to church and no one stones you. That's why um, all, all the laws in the, that we read in the Old Testament law of Moses were fulfilled in Christ, including the Sabbath law. So it's not like nine of the Ten Commandments were fulfilled by Christ and this one on the Sabbath wasn't. That one was fulfilled by Christ too, which is why Christians, right from the time of Jesus' resurrection, didn't keep the Sabbath um, universally anymore. What they did do is they started gathering on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday, to worship. And the reason they chose that day was because it was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day he rose. So on Sunday, and they started calling it the Lord's Day. Like you see in Revelation 1, um, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. Um, there's a couple of places where it mentions that. So putting all that together, Christians throughout history have treated the seven-day, uh, you know, six, work, six days you work and the seventh day you rest as still um, valid creational wisdom, but it's no longer binding on us like it was binding on Israel. But, and the day that we take off generally tends to be a Sunday because it's the Lord's Day and that's what's happened through church history. Now, if you live in Dubai, Sunday is a work day. Saturday is a work day. Friday, the whole city takes off. The whole country takes off. So Christians in Dubai, they meet and worship on a Friday. So it basically boils down to what your country lets you do. And most countries follow the Christian work week because most countries are affected by Christianity. And the ones that aren't, um, you know, communist Russia, they didn't take Sundays off <laughs> under Stalin. Um, uh, communist China didn't take Sundays off under, you know, Mao Zedong and those guys. They didn't, they didn't take any days off. And in, in Middle East, you take Fridays off, so that's fine. So we don't have a, we don't have a Sabbath, Saturday binding um, law to, to keep today. So Sunday, I would say, yeah, you need to take Sunday, make it the Lord's Day. I often tell my kids they want to do something, and I just tell them, it's the Lord's Day today. It's this day it's supposed to be enjoyable. I don't want it to be a burden on them. But there's certain things we just don't do. It's the Lord's Day. I don't want it to be a burden. If it's like, well, Dad, we, i got to do this homework or whatever. It's like, well, six days you can work. You know, 
you're doing something wrong if you have to work seven days. You know, every once in a while you might decide to do that, but you do that too long, creation mandate's gonna come crashing and you're gonna burn out.